The following message is given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com. Mark chapter 12. Look with me, if you would, to verse 13. That's where I'm going to begin reading. So Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. May God bless the hearing and the preaching of his word. Several weeks ago, my family, our family, went to see the UT basketball team play the Arizona Wildcats. We were totally psyched. We got there early for the pregame warm-ups and then for all the introductions because it's quite the affair nowadays. But before they introduced the team, a lady stepped out and did what is done at most major sporting events in our country. She sang the Star Spangled Banner. As she sang, it didn't take long for me to begin reflecting on our country and how much I love our country. I love America. I began to think, I, I, not all of this in this moment, but I began to think, what, when did I really begin to love America. Perhaps it was learning the Pledge of Allegiance in kindergarten. Perhaps it was a sorrow I shared with all Americans when the Challenger exploded. And I was like in fifth grade or fourth grade. Perhaps it was the shared sadness of Columbine or the shared agony of September 11. Perhaps it was even later when I met my wife and have reflected often on America's generosity to my father-in-law welcoming him as a refugee and providing a free land of opportunity to start over, raise his family, and the baby girl who is now my wife. That's why I'm most thankful for America. But regardless of when I began to really love America, as this gal sang, I was aware yet again that I still love it. Love what we stand for. I love this land of the free, this home of the brave, where the star-spangled banner still waves. Yet, over the past decade or so, I've found myself burdened for America. 
found myself asking many questions. Are we really the United States of America? Are we one nation? Or will we be more appropriately named the divided states of America? The trouble is on the left and the right. Liberals on the left, conservatives on the right. The political left and right no longer talk to one another. They shout and fight. Several years ago, referencing the passing of the same-sex marriage and the advancing campaign of LGBTQ plus rights, one Harvard professor described his attitude towards conservatives. The culture war, culture wars are over. They lost, we won. My own judgment is that taking a hard line, you lost, live with it, is better than trying to accommodate the losers. And you see it. But the response of the political right has not been too much different. Having been punched, they have punched back hard. The fight has continued over same-sex marriage, Black Lives Matter, police brutality, immigration, gender pronouns, elections, masks, vaccines, and so much more. There's a great divide in America, now I am Captain Obvious, between the political left and the political right. It's made even worse because much of the fight is waged over social media, a platform designed to give you more of what you like and less of what you don't like, leaving you more unable to understand anyone who doesn't think exactly like you. But the fight hasn't stayed out there. Each of us have been immersed and shaped through these incredibly effective social media fees, nudes fees, carefully crafted video clips, and like-minded communities. So much so that many in the church, speaking broadly, not necessarily to you, many of those in the church have come to believe the political left or the political right is the only way forward. And we all assume Jesus is on our side and thinks like we do. But does he? This morning, we come to what has been called the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. And my prayer is that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. In a word, where we're going is pledge allegiance to the flag, but give your life to God. <laughs> pledge allegiance to the flag, but give your life to God. I'm going to break this out. Three points. We're going to kind of address the question, what these guys are asking Jesus, the answer. So it's kind of two parts, and then the take of the implications. So a uh, number of different implications that I think and I trust been informed by the Spirit to help us. So the question, as we've, we've, we've mentioned before, our passage locates us, places us in the midst of the final week of Jesus on earth. So, so we, we, we've been studying this ever since the triumphal entry, and now we are in Tuesday of that final week. So Tuesday began, well, several weeks ago for us, but the same day for Jesus, uh, when Jesus and the disciples were passing the withered fig tree on the way to Jerusalem. Remember that? And the disciples pointed out it's withered. So that's when the day began and the day continued uh, 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 and now is immersed in what Tuesday will become known for, questions. Questions. Tuesday is question day. That's what the scholars say. As we saw last week, chief priests, scribes, and elders ask him a question about authority. The Pharisees and Herodians ask him a question in our text. 
And the questions continue throughout chapter 12 with the Sadducees and later the scribes. Jesus, the reason they come up with that question, Jesus is the most popular teacher gathered in Jerusalem for Passover. And Tuesday is question day, the day when all his enemies seek to unravel his teaching and bust up his crowd of followers. So that's what's going on. That's, that's the scene. They can't yet arrest him because of his popularity. And so they're seeking to unravel him, dismantle what he's saying, and bust up his crowd of followers. And so our text zeroes in on a question from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Look in verse 13 again. They sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk they sent now if we could pause for a minute didn't Taylor do a wonderful job last week he's not even looking at me looking at his phone but I so encourage listening you be the judge but one of the things he emphasized so well as he unpacked this parallel it's all the people God had sent in the parable of the tenants. You know, he'd sent prophet after prophet after prophet, and then he sent his son. So immediately after that, Mark is deliberately telling, immediately after Jesus announces all the people that have been sent to rescue the people of God, they send a crew to test the rescuer. And so the Sanhedrin, that's the they there, the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 that run so many of the religious affairs in Jerusalem, sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. But why the Pharisees and the Herodians together? Everyone living in the first century knows that these two don't get along. The Pharisees are the far right. They're the conservatives. They're known for how they separate themselves from all the bad people and the bad things in the world and devote themselves to doing what is good. Well, the Herodians are the far left. Their name is their giveaway. They are followers, or their allegiance is to Herod. They're Jews, but they, they really like the system with Herod. So they're the far left, the liberals, they're known for their support of Herod and their support of Roman rule. And so you should ask, we should ask, what in the world are these two doing together? And Kent Hughes helps us. He says, they were cemented together by their mutual hatred for Jesus. Pharisees hated him because he was disrupting their religious agenda. And we saw that all throughout this book. The, they had a religious agenda in the synagogues and who could do this on the Sabbath or whatever. And so he's disrupting their religious agenda, the Herodians, because he threatened their political arrangement. If he causes the masses to go crazy, it'll mess up the situation with Herod and Rome. They both wanted him dead. Similar to the unlikely union between Tennessee fans and Georgia fans, there's something we hate more than each other, Alabama. <laughs> so can we all say go dogs? <laughs> they're together because there's something they hate more, Jesus Christ. So while these questions do appear like nice little debate or something like that. They're driven by hatred. They're seeking to lure Jesus into a trap. Mark alerts us to the trap, but we can see for ourselves in the way they approach him. Look down in 14. They come to him. Teacher, we know that you're true. Don't care about anyone's opinion. Not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. 
as we've seen before, they begin flattering Jesus. They go on and on, telling about how he's always does what is right, teach the way of God truly, but their words are insincere. They don't believe what they're saying. They're a smokescreen. They're a diversion. You probably heard the story of the, uh, the Trojan horse in Greek mythology, right? They, they, uh, the Greeks are in a war with people of Troy, and, and they convinced the people of Troy they were retreating from the war, and, and so a horse was given to them as a present, a massive horse that was hollow, and the Greek warriors were hiding inside the horse, and all came out in the middle of the night, and their smooth words are just like that. They're positive and kind but they're seeking to lure Jesus into a trap that will cost him his life. Ironically, they're speaking the truth. Just like Pilate, hail king of the Jews, you know, they're speaking the truth. Jesus is true. He is the God who's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Nevertheless, nevertheless, they ask him their question. Look in verse 14b. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, the question seems simple enough. Is it lawful or not to pay taxes? But we'll look at it and we'll see this trap. They're asking about the, the tax, the annual tax of one denarii for living in or existing in Rome. It's what's called the head tax. It's a tax, it's a tax that the people of Jewish people hate because it reminds them that they are not in charge. So people, they're meant to dwell with God in God's place. They realize they're not in their own land. They're not living under the law of God. They're under the thumb of Rome. But it's not just an annoying tax. It's not just an inconvenient tax, which is some of the taxes. I mean, you may view them that way. They're inconvenient. They're a bit annoying. It's not just that way. They view it as something definitively unlawful. That's why they ask, is it lawful? Is it they're not talking about lawful according to Rome. They're talking about lawful according to the, the word of God, the law of God. What they're asking is, how can you pledge allegiance to God and give a tax to Caesar? If the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's, how can you give the Lord's money to Caesar? So you should be, we should be beginning to see this trap. The, the Pharisees and the Herodians are both coming to him to ask a question because if, if he answers yes, the people will be angry and the Pharisees will be excited. The people will be angry and the Sanhedrin can arrest him. Remember several, several texts ago, they couldn't arrest him for fear of the people. If he answers no, the Romans will accuse him of being a revolutionary, vigilante, and they will arrest him. So if he answers yes, the Pharisees will be excited because his popularity will go down and Sanhedrin can arrest him. If he answers no, the Romans will accuse him of being a revolutionary and they will arrest him. Point two, the answer. Point two, the answer. Now, Jesus is in quite a pickle, as they used to say, but he knows it. He, he knows it. Um, um, look at verse 15a. He says, but knowing their Hypocrisy says, why put me to the test? Jesus knows their hypocrisy. Jesus, what does that mean? They're hypocritical. They, Jesus knows they don't mean what they say. Jesus knows they're not asking him a sincere question. 
Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and the hearts of these men, along with the hearts of every other man under heaven, are laid bare before him. Uh, Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now let's just pause here for a minute. Others may see your bluff, but not Jesus. Others may be thrown off the scent by religious performance, while hiding sexual immorality, bitterness, anger, and deceit, but Jesus is not. Jesus looks on the heart. This week I had a friend of mine die while he was still bluffing. He died in a lie. He died hiding. There's no safe place to hide your secrets from the living God. And one day everything will be made known. But today, though, right now, you can come right out of hiding to Jesus. That, that's the wonderful truth of the gospel. If we, if, we, if we say we have no sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we walk in the light, he is in light. We have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And so I invite you in so many ways. That's the first steps of the gospel is coming forward to admit that you are someone who's blown it and you need a savior. And then actually the Christian life is one where we refuse to play the game anymore. But they don't come out of hiding. That's the sad truth. Jesus asked for a denarii, denarius. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. Presumably, he began to look at it. Now, a denarius is a small silver coin weighing a bit more than a penny, worth a day, one day's work, one day's pay, and they give it to him. And the tension of the scene is mounting, so he, he calls this denarii, he calls this, this object lesson and takes up this denarius and, and is looking at it and you can feel the tension of the scene, a hush fall on the crowd as Jesus takes this small coin in his hands and looks at it and then he breaks the silence and says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Now they're not following him yet. Perhaps nor are we, but whose likeness and inscription it is? And then they utter the very words they hated to other Caesars. And they're right. On one side of the denarius is the head of Caesar, perhaps like Lincoln on our penny. And it said Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. On the other side of the inscription, this might be why the chief priest hated it, was chief priest. So they're right. The likeness was on one side, Caesar. On the other side, the inscription, chief priest. And then our Lord brilliantly addresses them. Verse 17, he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus' enemies seek to lure him into a trap, forcing him one way or the other to his demise, but he finds a third way, a way out. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. 
What in the world does that mean? What belongs to Caesar? Now, now obviously, the object lesson is Caesar's image and inscription is on every denarii, but does that mean every denarius, denarii, whatever I've been saying, does that mean all my hard-earned money belongs to someone else? Is that what it means? Does Caesar, is it rightfully everything that has his image on it? No, that's not what it means. So all your money does not belong to the state. That's not what Jesus is saying. If you notice, he shifts from, uh, 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 he says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. So he's not saying everything that has the likeness and inscription on it is Caesar's. If you follow me, he's shifting a little bit in his argumentation. So he's not saying everything that has the likeness and inscription, every, uh, every about amount of money printed from the mint is not Caesar's. Rather, what he's saying is give Caesar what he wants. Oh, wait, he's not saying give Caesar what he wants. He's rather saying give Caesar what belongs to him. Actually, the word is literally give back. So, so he's not saying give Caesar whatever he wants. He's saying give back whatever belongs to him. Give back what you owe him. So it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. But render to God the things that are God. And this is where Jesus is completely brilliant. And I guess we could say that about every passage in the Bible. But Jesus sees the denarius. He takes this up into his hand. And he looks at it to see the likeness and inscription. He says, I see this coin, but I also see another coin right now. Who else is stamped in a likeness is what he's saying. What else is marked with an image. Every man and woman under heaven. You ever seen one of those machines at Dollywood where you put like two quarters in, you put a penny in, and you, you, you kind of wheel, and you get out a picture of Dolly or something? <laughs> I don't know, the Smokies? I don't know. Uh, we never do it. But you know, they're out there. And uh, you lost some money, I guess, because you can't spend that anywhere. The same way we're stamped. at the work of creation. Actually, he didn't put in the matter and spin it around. He said, man, woman, spoke with all people everywhere, stamped in the image and likeness of God. We are God's image. That's what he's saying. I see another coin. I, I see a coin in you, Pharisee, and you, Herodian. You are God's coin. You are from his mint. We are God's coin. We're from his mint. We're stamped with his seal. So give back to Caesar whatever you owe him, but more importantly, give back to God whatever you owe him. If we owe Caesar a denarius for living under Roman rule, what do we owe God? For living in his world, for breathing in his air, for being stamped in his image. Your life. These are high, this high-stakes poker. I mean, this is the real thing. This, you give him your life. D.A. Carson says, if we give back to God what has his his image on it, we must give all. We must all give ourselves to him. If we give back to God what has his image on it, we must all give ourselves to him. We may be obligated to pay taxes to Caesar, but we owe everything, our very being, to God. And they marveled. I mean, <laughs> wouldn't you? I mean, 
they, 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 those guys marveled. I mean, those crooks marveled. Oh. So pledge allegiance to the flag. Give your life to God. So implications. First is pledge allegiance to the flag regardless of who is in the White House. Pledge allegiance to the flag regardless of who's in the White House. Now you have to remember who Mark's writing to. Mark is writing to people all throughout the empire in 64 A.D. On the verge, if not the, already the beginning, already ensued, already commenced. Persecution under Nero. Now the Romans were not Nazis, but they were not honoring God <laughs> with their government and did persecute Christians on numerous occasions under Nero, Domitian, Decius, and others. Yet Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now what he's saying is, Caesar possesses God-given authority you must respect. Every elected official possesses God-given authority that you must respect, we must respect. Consistent with the teaching of Jesus, Peter says, honor the emperor. Honor him who has absolute rule. In addition, Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for no one, for there is no authority except God, from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, we should pledge allegiance to the flag regardless of who is in the White House. Jesus opposes anarchy. Jesus generally does not support revolution, insurrection, what if, the White House, what if the man in the White House is bad? What if the people in charge are doing the work of the enemy? Time and again, the people of God are found in difficult situations. Sometimes they took up arms, but most often the Bible calls us to submission, quietness, perseverance, and preaching the gospel. Martin Luther, the reformer, after his reformation, is quite a revolution in response to what he was teaching. He never condoned it. He said, the church of the New Testament did not attempt to save its existence by making a concordant with Nero and Domitian and Decius in their great persecution, or by stirring up a revolution against these tyrants, or by making an alliance with the Persian Empire, but simply confessing the truth of the gospel and building up a truly confessing church whose members were prepared to die for their faith. Now, one caveat we're not in Rome. <laughs> we live in a democracy. So I would encourage you to be active politically. We should vote. We should do everything we can to make our community healthy and better for everyone. Good government can have a significant impact on the lives of many people by punishing what is evil and praising what is good. Point two, pay your taxes regardless of whether you agree with how the money is spent. Pay your taxes regardless of whether you agree with how the money is spent. 
Some people say, I'm not paying taxes. If my taxes are spent carelessly or go on to support some ungodly organization like Planned Parenthood, I'm not paying them. But the problem is Jesus doesn't argue that way. That is a type of revolution. That's a type of insurrection type act. Jesus doesn't argue like that. He continues to uphold ungodly, God-given authority. If you wanted to talk about that, we'd get a cup of coffee on why I think he does that. He says, pay what is owed to Caesar. Romans 13, 7, pay to all what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. That's the same type of language to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. It's just straight from Jesus' teaching. In a fallen world, there's no question you won't agree with how tax dollars are spent. But how, you, how tax dollars are spent are, is not on you. It's on them. Well, not them, but it's on whoever spends it. Three, pray for your political leaders, but pray for the nations more. Now, I've got to explain this a little bit. But pray for your political leaders, but pray for the nations more. And that scripture is very clear. Honor our political leaders. Submit to our political leaders. Pray for our political leaders. First Timothy 2 says, first of all, then I urge supplication, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that, they, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Kind of gets at what we should pray and why we should pray that we can continue with our quiet life. So pray for your political leaders And if I could put it this way, don't become too America-centered. Now, let me explain that. I recently read an interview with a distinguished Christian historian named Andrew Walls, and he observed that wherever every other great world religion began, there is still its center. So Islam began in Arabia, and the Middle East continues to be the center of Islam. Buddhism began in the Far East, and there it it continues to be its center. Hinduism began in India, and there is still its center, but not Christianity. Christianity began in the Middle East, but the center continually changes. And what I mean by center is kind of the, the, the most consolidated number of Christians continues to be changers. Not in America anymore, by the way. Uh, its center continues to be changes. Why? Because Christianity is not tied to a certain nation. If Jesus wanted to start a truly Christian nation, he would have overthrown Herod and set it up in Jerusalem. But he didn't. Why? Because he wanted the gospel to be spread to every nation of the world. Jesus did not come to gather citizens of one nation, but to to gather strangers and aliens of every nation under heaven. So don't become too America-focused. Which is, America's a great nation, but it's not God's nation. It's not God's plan for the world. And I don't mean that to be pugnacious. The church is. That's the plan. So don't work to bring God's kingdom politically in America. We should feel, the point is, we should feel more like the people of Israel and Babylon than the people of Israel in the promised land. 
We should feel more like the strangers and aliens. If you don't feel that way, then let's get a cup of coffee. Because we're not home. So pray for your political leaders, but pray for the nations more. There's a war in Ethiopia going on right now, threatening the lives of a young church and a pastor's college there. There's the gospels going forward in the Philippines in wonderful ways in Latin America. Pray for the nations more. That's what Jesus came to do, to split open this gospel, send it all over the world. So fourthly, present your entire life to the Lord. Now, on the one hand, this means we present our entire life to the Lord. We must resist when political leaders seek to prohibit us from honoring and obeying God above all at all times. We must resist when political leaders seek to prohibit us from honoring and obeying God above all at all times. There are lanes in Jesus' teaching. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. Now he's establishing lanes, right? But it's tricky if you just view it as lanes because God owns the whole highway. <laughs> God owns both lanes. God calls the shots always. So he gives a delegated, limited authority to Caesar, but he has all authority over everything. So Dia Carson says, helpfully, Jesus' famous utterance means that God always trumps Caesar. You understand what I'm saying? There are lanes. He's giving, him, he's giving real authority. When he goes outside that lane, God's authority always trumps him. So when Caesar moves outside his lane, when he takes away freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of conscience, when he tells us not to preach the gospel of free grace or not to call sin what the Bible calls sin, we must and we will resist now, it's not just anything that's annoying, like it's annoying the way they spend money or something like that. We don't, we don't have the permission, I don't think, biblically to resist everything that's annoying, but we resist when it's very clear he's outside his lane. So like the Hebrew mid midwives, when we are called to do that which the Bible forbids, we will resist. Like Rahab, we may need to lie to protect the truth and those speaking the truth. Like Peter and John, we will not be silent. That's on the one hand. <laughs> on the other hand, we must obey and honor God above all at all times. We must honor and obey God above all at all times. You know, one of the saddest things revealed among professing Christians during this season is professing Christians who have great convictions about mass vaccines and several other secondary things, but who have no little convictions about the central things. We must not be that way. Have your conviction, mass vaccines and other things. There should be a world of convictions that are much stronger than those. Jonathan Lehman calls us all out when he says, you who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church who are ethnically and nationally different than you? You who vote for family values, do you honor your parents? 
You who talk of welfare reform, do you give to the needy in your congregation? You who proclaim that all lives matter, do you, all your friends look like you? You who fight for traditional marriage, do you love your wife, cherishing her as you would your own body and washing her with the water of your word? You who f- call for freedom of conscience, what are you doing with it? We present our lives to the Lord. <laughs> so this is about. We render to God the things that are God. What's God's? My life. What's that mean? Last night I was thinking in bed, what's this mean? And then I immediately reminded of the scene of, uh, about uh, uh, Shimei in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, King David, he had a lot of trouble, but he was run out of town at one point by his son Absalom. How would you like that? Usurped by the throne by your, from your very own son. That's when it gets real bad. And on his way out, Shimei, one of his servants, throws stones at him and curses him. Bloodthirsty man, you. And later, Absalom is killed. And when David makes his way back to Jerusalem, Shimei is the first one to meet him. He bows before him by the Jordan, begs him not to hold him guilty or remember the wrong he did. He begs him for a second chance and promises his loyalty. And that's what it means. Present your life to the Lord and begging him for a second chance. God, I've ruined your world. I've stained this vessel. I've spent my life wasting it for selfish ambition, worldly idols. I'm falling before your feet. God, I give you my life. Remember not the sins of my youth. I want to follow you. I want everything to be about you. That's what it is. It's Shimei. On the one hand, it's so sobering. Present your life to the Lord. Render to God the things that are God's so sobering. The only way you can come to God, the only way you can come to Jesus Christ is turning over all the keys. The only way you can come to Jesus is by turning away from everything else. He shares the stage with no one. It's not he must increase and maybe I can as well. No, it's he must increase and I must decrease all the way down. I give you my life, Lord. C.S. Lewis invites us. He says, die before you die. There is no chance after. The shocking thing is, is bowing before the Lord in this way, dying to everything else is the only way to life. So I invite you, get real. Jesus Christ. On the other hand, this is so encouraging. Render Caesar what is Caesar God, what is God's? Jesus did not come so that you would mind your P's and Q's. Jesus didn't come so you put on a tie one day a week. Jesus came to buy your life back. He came to start you over 10 times. He came to make you new. He came to be your friend. He came so that you would live with him and honor him and worship him above all at all times. So pledge allegiance to the flag, but give your life to God. May God help us. Father in heaven, we cast ourselves to you. We offer ourselves to you humbly and sincerely. Lord, we don't want to play games. We resist the charade. 
Where else can we go? No one else has the words of eternal life. And so we run to you. We cling to you. Because you are the living God. Who's made a way for us to God. We worship you. Lord, I pray that you would drive us deeper and deeper in our allegiance to Jesus Christ above all and at all times. May he receive all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Walt Alexander, lead pastor of Trinity Grace Church in Athens, Tennessee. For more information about Trinity Grace, please visit us at trinitygraceathens.com.